Okay, well, I am, I am very pumped up for tonight's lesson because finally we made it to chapter 12. Uh, and I hope you know that there is nothing in the whole world, maybe second to the singing we just did, but there's nothing in the whole world that I would rather do than hang out with you and talk scripture and talk Jesus. So if ever after class you like, I want to talk about that more, please, you know, I mean, please, let's talk. I'll have to go get my son from class tonight. But other than that, you know, let's, let's talk about this because, or if you don't talk to me about it, talk to somebody about it. Let's, I hope that Bible classes and sermons are just the beginning of the conversations that you have about these truths. And I hope if, I I hope, I mean, these are just 30 minute snippets and I hope that it whets your appetite to talk about it more. Um, I would love to talk about it with you, and I know that lots of people in here would, so continue the conversation. Uh, but speaking of the conversation, we've been talking about Romans. Uh, perhaps maybe somebody, this is their first time here tonight, and we're like 16 lessons in, um, and we're on chapter 12 of Romans. And so we've been going sort of chapter by chapter, verse by verse, um, and with this big overarching idea that the book of Romans is primarily about the fact that God has kept his promises. He's kept his promises primarily in the sending of Jesus, that the promises that God made through the holy scriptures, through the prophets, have come true and are coming true and will come true through the person of Jesus. So the first eight chapters we summarized this way, Romans 1 through 8, we said, in keeping with God's promises, he is rescuing creation from the reign of sin and death by adopting, justifying, and giving his spirit to all those who have faith in Jesus with the promise that their mortal bodies along with the whole creation will be redeemed when his wrath is revealed against sin. So that's how we summarize the first eight chapters. And then I sort of crammed together chapters 9 through 11 and every week I tweak it a little bit. But this is how we could summarize it. God was being fair and here's a new word I threw in tonight, consistent. I think that's a lot of what Paul is arguing, that God is being consistent in the way that he's dealing with humanity. Uh, this isn't outside of the realm of the way God has always dealt with his people or with humanity, that God was being fair and consistent in choosing to cut off a portion of ethnic Israel because of their unbelief so he could bestow his, and I like this phrase that Paul uses, riches, or in context he's talking about covenant riches, his covenant riches on a full and complete family made up of Yes, a remnant of ethnic Israel, along with Gentiles of every nation, or in other words, everyone who submits in faith to the lordship of Jesus. So God was being fair and consistent when he cut off those ethnic Israelites who did not believe, and that in their plan, uh, these Gentiles, because of their belief in Jesus, and this whole family, ethnic Israelites and Gentiles of every nation, make up the full and complete family of God, the covenant family, the new, the new Israel that God is saving in Jesus Christ. So I hope that all makes sense. Now, Paul has been building, and I've hinted at this every week, but Paul has been building his argument in order to get to a therefore. And a lot of times when Paul is writing, he builds this theological base 
And he says, all of these things are true. This is who God is. This is what God has done. This is what the gospel means. And he lays all these facts out. And he says, okay, now, if you believe this, then this is the way you should live based on that. All of this is true. Therefore, this is how that looks in the life of the people who embrace this and believe that. So in Romans chapter 12, we read this. Romans 12 and verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. So you see the the therefore? Therefore, in fact, some translations may put that first. Therefore, I appeal to you based on what? Everything that Paul has been saying, that God is giving his covenant riches He is bestowing covenant membership on anyone who has faith in the Messiah, Jesus. Anyone who gives their loyalty to King comes out on the other side, ready to walk in newness of life. All of those who give their loyalty to Jesus, God gives covenant membership to them because God is gracious and he has chosen them in the Messiah. So based on all that, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, right? By the mercies of God, because of the mercies of God, because God is merciful and gracious, because of these covenant riches that he's pouring out on you, I I appeal to you, therefore, to do what? To present your bodies as a living, what? Sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Now, what kind of language is that? What kind of a person, here, pop quiz time, okay? It won't be hard, I promise. Uh, What kind of a person offers up sacrifices? A priest, right? A priest. A priest offers up sacrifices. Now, if we were to kind of go back in Romans and think about how the conversation has gone, has Paul used any sort of priestly language? Think back to chapter 1. And think about what he he talked about when he he introduces this idea that all humanity, both the Gentile and the Jew, have all sinned and rebelled against God and are deserving of the wrath of God. Remember how he talked about it? He talked about, if you got your Bible, I won't put it on the screen, but look at Romans 1 and somewhere around verse 18. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. He says, here's what they did. They... Although they knew God, this is verse 21, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to him. 25 of Romans 1. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. I think if we, if we step outside and we look at the totality of the story of scripture, I think that, that you can make a good argument that human beings were created to be priests. Think about for a second, when God first created Adam and Eve, he put them in the Garden of Eden, right? Now, the Garden of Eden was a special place for lots of reasons. One reason was because God was there and man was there. What do you call a place where God is, where any God is, but specifically our God, Yahweh God? What what do you call a place where God is and man is? That's called a 
a temple, right? A temple. That's a temple. A temple is a place where man is and God is, a place where heaven and earth overlap, a place where you can go and meet God, and that's where humanity was, in this temple, this garden temple of Eden. And what was man's job in the garden? To be an image bearer of God, right? To bear the image of God, to give glory to God, to reflect God's image into the world, to worship and serve and love the creator like a, a priest, right? But, but Paul says, here's what humanity did. Instead of worshiping the creator who is blessed forever, what did they do? They exchanged it for the glory of created things. Instead of giving the glory to God, as a priest is supposed to do, they gave the glory to created things. And they became ensnared and entrapped. They became slaves of sin and death. They became corrupted. They became accursed, right? And that's what's happened to all of humanity, both the Gentile and the Jew. But in Christ Jesus, we are being rescued, right? We're being justified. We're being given covenant membership with God and bestowed the riches of God's covenant membership is being bestowed on us. And here, Paul says, therefore, based on what God is doing with you and in you and for you, what, what should you do? Now you're a, you're a priest, right? Because now your job is to take And offer a sacrifice to God. And what's the sacrifice that you are supposed to offer to God? Yourselves, right? Your bodies. Offer to God your bodies, not as a dead sacrifice, right? Not killing yourself, but as a living sacrifice. You now live for God. As a priest, you take your whole life, your whole body, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your mouth, everything. And now, instead of doing what you used to do, in giving the glory due to God to the created things and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, now you give glory where glory is due, right? Now, because of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus, you've been restored to your rightful place as a priest of God. And now what you should do in that place and with that vocation is give glory to God. Give yourself to God, offer sacrifices to God, which is your body. Now look at what he says. He says, I appeal to you because of the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. You are now, right? You are holy and acceptable and you offering your life, your body to him is holy and acceptable. And then he says, which is your spiritual worship? Now, I think... The word there is logikos, uh, spiritual. The ESV translates that spiritual. Uh, If you look at it, it's L-O-G-I-K-O-S, something like that, transliterated. It's it's the root word is logos, word. And when you think about the related words, it's more like, in fact, it's where we get the word logic or logical. Um, So it's kind of weird that they would translate that as spiritual. It's more about logical. In fact, some translations do well, I think, in in saying reasonable, right? You're reasonable, right? The only logical thing to do, the only reasonable response to the mercies of God is to what? Is to live out your vocation. 
is to offer your body to God as a living sacrifice. That's the only reasonable response. Anything else, anything less would be unreasonable, would be illogical. In fact, the word worship there isn't, there's a couple different words for worship. One is proskuneo, which means like fall down before, you know, like fall prostrate before someone, kiss the ground, kiss their feet, that kind of a thing. The word here, though, is the word for a priest working in the temple. It's ministry, it's religious service and duty. This is, this is the only logical thing you can do is take your whole life, everything you are, everything you have, your hands, your feet, your mouth, your eyes, everything that you are, and offer it to God as a living sacrifice because now you are a priest. This is your reasonable, logical service to God. Does that make sense? But do we process life that way? Do we process theology that way? It's one thing, isn't it, to hear all of, like, everything we've been studying for the last 16 weeks and just talk about, yeah, okay, God is good, God keeps his promises, God this, God that, you know, and talk about how good God is and then just go and <laughs> do whatever we want to do or just live however. But, but it's, a, it's a conscious thing. It's an intentional thing. It's a logical thing. It's a reasonable thing. If God has broken off some other branch so that I could be grafted in in its place, I've been given royal status. I've been given covenant membership in the family of God. I'm loved by God and cherished by God. I'm God's prized possession. God is pouring out his covenant riches on me. Then the only logical response to that is for me to give God everything everything. But it's so easy, isn't it, to slip back into the old way of living, for us to give the glory, for us to give the praise and the honor to created things. And I mean, it's, it's still the same stuff, isn't it? Sex and money and power. I mean, it's the same kind of idols that have plagued humankind forever. And we elevate sex and money and power and these things to an elevated, deified status. And we give to those things the glory and the praise. But when we keep the gospel in our mind, it changes everything. So that we, if we just stop and think about it for two seconds. And I think maybe, I'm just talking off the top of my head here, but I think maybe that's one of the problems with us in our fast-paced society. Jesus, when I slow down and I think about my decisions, but I don't always slow down and think about my decisions, right? I mean, sometimes we live moment to moment. We just go, 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 and do, do, do. And before we know it, we've done something, and we think, why did I do that, and how did I get there? That's why from the very beginning, that's why the psalmist would say and Proverbs would say, meditate on the scriptures, Meditate on who God is and what he's done so that you contemplate your logical, reasonable response to God and that your reasonable response to God for everything that he's done for you is to take your whole self, your whole body, your whole life, everything you are and everything you have and everything you do and present it to God as a sacrifice and say, I am yours. I am mine no more.
I mean, think about the things Paul says, like in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. Don't live anymore. I don't have anything to boast in except the cross of Jesus Christ. Who are you, Paul? I'm living out the life of the Messiah. That's who I am. And then Paul would say, follow me as I follow Christ. Imagine, imagine how much different our lives would be. Imagine how much different the whole world would be if Christian people actually, intentionally, consciously, logically, reasonably thought out every decision based on the mercies of God. Because of the mercies of God, I will do X, I will do Y, I will do Z because of what God has done for me. I I didn't mean to rhyme right then. Okay, sorry. Verse two, do not be conformed to this world. Right? Don't go. Don't go back to Romans 1. Don't go back to what you were. You've been rescued from all of that. Romans 6, don't, if you've escaped from the defilements of sin, why would you go back to living in it? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I mean, I get the idea and the picture there that it's not, it's not an all of a sudden kind of a thing, is it? Transformed renewal, transformation and renewal, testing, discerning what the will of God is. This isn't something that happens overnight. It's a a process of transformation. Don't be conformed to the world, but go about the business of being transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will be able to test and discern and figure out, think about and logically reason through and say, is this good? Is this right? And, and in what light are you testing and discerning everything? In the light of the gospel. In the light of the mercies of God. In light of what God has done for you. In light of who you are in Christ Jesus. Is this the will of God? And imagine how much different our lives would be if we seriously stopped and thought and tested and tried to discern the will of God when we made decisions i don't think god cares what color shirt you wear or what color shoes you wear or whatever sometimes we we sort of nitpick well what's the will of god in this situation no, no no i mean he's about to un, he's about to lay out for us what the will of god looks like uh, in our life what it looks like to live out the will of god uh, verse three for by the grace given to me i say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think and that's what he's been going through all along hasn't he if you're a jew don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. If you're a Gentile, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, the way that's worded kind of makes it sound like, well, you have a certain amount of faith, and I have a certain amount of faith, and somebody else has a certain amount of faith, and maybe that's what it means, but I like this translation. This is the Kingdom New Testament. It says, think soberly in in line with faith, the true standard which God has marked out for each of you. When, when he says measure, the measure of faith, that's the, the standard of faith. What does it look like to think of yourself with sober judgment in line with the standard of faith? What, is it, what does it mean to look at yourself and think of yourself through the lens of faith, and by faith, he means loyalty to Jesus, right? What what does it look like to to think of yourself through the lens of faith in Jesus? 
To let the gospel and faith in Jesus Christ be the standard by which you look at yourself. Well, I'm glad you asked because here's what he says. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, right? So your body has lots of different members, fingers and toes and hands and feet and all these things. And, and none of them have the same job. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. That's what it looks like to, to think of yourself with sober judgment, to think of yourself in line with the standard of faith, is to see yourself as being a small part of something much bigger. I mean, what good would it be? I mean, I know it's silly, but it's the metaphor he's using, right? But I mean, what good would it be if my thumb was like, hey, listen, guys, I mean, you know, the rest of y'all, y'all pretty cool, but I think I, can, I got this, you know? I got this thing. I'm important part of the body, and I'm, I'm super talented. I'm, I'm a thumb, you know? I mean, I'm opposable. I've got all these talents and abilities. I don't really need the rest of you. I mean, how long would it make it by itself, right? I don't know. Not very long, right? It can't see. It can't hear. It can't smell. It can't move by. I mean, there's a million things it can't do. That's what it looks like to think of yourself with sober judgment. You are a part of something bigger than yourself. And the rest of the body needs you, yes, but you need the rest of the body. You are part of God's rescue operation, but not just you individually. God is rescuing a full and complete family. And you're a part of that, but you've got to be so careful. I mean, it's, it's easy, isn't it, for any of us, for any reason. I mean, we can find any kind of reason in the world to get proud. I mean, we can even be proud of our humility, right? You know, I'm a very humble person, and I like that about myself, right? You know, I mean, we can get proud about anything. Watch it. Think of yourself with sober judgment. Who are you? I'm a sinner saved by grace. I was lost. I was made to be a priest and give glory and honor to God, but I, I traded that and I exchanged it and I gave the glory that was due to God. I gave it to sex and to money and to power. And I became a slave of sin and death. And, and through no goodness of my own, I was rescued by King Jesus. And now I give all of my loyalty to him. And I'm a part of what he's doing in the world. And whatever he wants to do with me and however he wants to use me and however the spirit takes me and whatever I, my talents are or abilities are, it's to serve this greater purpose. I'm nothing and I don't even live. It's the life that I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God. That's what it looks like to think of yourself with sober Judgment. Verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. The physical body have different abilities and so do the people in the church. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So, I mean, there's, there's multiple lessons that we could take away from that, aren't there? On the one hand, you don't have all of those talents. You aren't all of those things. So stop trying to be. And at the same time, somebody else is. Let them, let them do that. Think of yourself in light of the truth of this gospel. Okay, now, verse 9. Now, really, 
really what does it look like to live within the body of Christ. Now, I think these, these first few verses, um, you know, what we've been talking about thus far and all the way through verse 13, um, specifically address life in the church. What does it look like to present your body based on the mercies of God, to present your body as a living sacrifice, and to view yourself with sober judgment in light of your faith in the gospel, in light of your faith in Jesus, as it relates to the church. Here's what it looks like. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Real, real, genuine love. This is what it looks like. I mean, it's, it's so easy. I've heard, ah, and we've all heard this, haven't we? And we've all been guilty of it, probably. We've all been guilty of like getting caught up in Romans 12, 1, you know, present your body to God as a living sacrifice. And, you know, my whole life is worship and service to God. And, you know, and just kind of leave it at that, at just sort of this vague thing, right? Or say things like, our job is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. Amen, amen, let's go home and let's just leave it at that. Just vague and abstract and who knows what that means and what it actually looks like in real life. Well, this is the kind of stuff that it looks like. It means that your love for each other is real and genuine and there's no hypocrisy. There's no saying to somebody, oh, you don't have any food and you don't have a roof over your head, well, I'll pray for you. Be warmed and well-fed. Meanwhile, I take all my goods and hold on to them. It means we take care of each other. We have real, genuine love in, in which we hate what is evil. And when it creeps in, we don't, we don't tolerate it. We, we love people enough to speak the truth and to, to, to admonish and to warn, outdo one another in showing honor. What would that look like in the church? We tried to outdo one another in showing honor. It reminds me of what he says in Philippians chapter 2. This is what it looks like to have the mind of Christ. Consider others not just to be your equal. It's one thing to consider everybody to be your equal. And that's a revolutionary idea. That everybody's equal. Whether you're a slave or you're free or you're a man or you're a woman. Everybody's equal. That, that's a revolutionary idea and would be a revolutionary idea in the first century Roman world. And it would be a revolutionary idea today if it was carried out. But that's not the call of Christians. To treat everybody like you're equal. It's to treat everybody like you're better. Like they're better than you. Like they're your superior outdo one another in showing honor. Consider others as more significant than yourself. Look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Yes, that's what it looks like in the body of Christ. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints And seek to show hospitality. Now, again, contribute to the needs of the saints. That's what Christianity looks like. And and, and I'll be honest, I mean, for my entire life, 
I have never been in a church family where there has been anyone that everybody knew was in need and the church didn't rush to help them and bless them. I have never been in a church family where somebody was hungry or was homeless or didn't have clothes that their needs weren't taken care of. But, but a lot of times I'm in a church family where those needs are taken care of by a small minority of the church family. These truths are for everyone who has received the mercies of God. If you've received the mercies of God, then present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. And this is the sort of thing that it looks like. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. That word hospitality, by the way, yes, I think we can work that out and live that out by you know, having people over for dinner. Yes, I think that's good and great and fine. But, but it literally means to show kindness to strangers. That's what hospitality means. I mean, imagine the first century world where you had a Christian brother that you didn't really know. And he says, well, I just came from Ephesus or I just came from Corinth or I just came from Athens and, and I got run out of town and people are seeking to kill me or I'm just passing through and I need a place to stay for a week or two or three or four. Can I stay with you? Right? And, and you're like, well, I'm glad we don't live in that world. <laughs> but, but how can we live that out now? This is the kind of thing that it looks like to offer up our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. It's one thing to just leave that as sort of a vague, abstract idea. But when we get down to the concrete, this is what it looks like. It looks like helping and blessing and loving each other with a real, genuine love that meets the needs of the people around us. Now, that was the easy part, okay? That's the easy part of the lesson. Now he gets to the tough stuff, okay? Now verse 14. Bless those who, what, church? Persecute you. Do what to them? Bless them. And, and the, the word that, that's translated bless, that Greek word, is the, the word from which we get the word eulogy. What, what do you do in a eulogy? You speak, not badly of somebody, you speak well of somebody, right? That's what you do. You speak well and you, you do good to someone. That's what it means to bless. To say good things and do good things for them. To be a blessing to them. So when someone persecutes you, your job as someone who has received the mercies of God and who is presenting your body as a living sacrifice to God, your job is to bless those who persecute you. Now, here, I mean, it's Wednesday night, right? I can just be totally, you know, honest and straightforward. I mean, we live in a world right now where most of us, 21st century Americans, there's a lot of people in the world that have faced very real persecution. But right now, I think what we're on the cusp of and what we're starting to see is the threat of maybe someday possibly living in a culture where Christianity might sort of be persecuted. And even in the face of that, we won't bless people. Is that true? In the face of that, we curse them. In the, just the threat of persecution. How, how are we going to be able to respond biblically? How are we going to be able to respond with the response that Jesus calls us to, that the gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to, to bless those who persecute us 
If we can't even those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And I think in this context, yes, it means in the church, but it also means in the community. In the community. If people are rejoicing and you can, you can rejoice with them, then rejoice with them. If they're weeping, then weep with them. Don't rejoice when they're weeping. If your pagan neighbor has a tragedy befall them, you don't secretly say, yes, I'm glad God's punishing them. You don't do it. You weep with them. You mourn with them. If they're rejoicing, you don't say, oh, why does God bless these pagans? Why do good things happen to them? Why don't good things happen to me? No, you rejoice with them. And you weep with them. You live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Verse, 15, or verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Again, that idea of thinking, thinking through it, testing it, discerning it, doing what's reasonable and logical Give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. That means it's your job as a person who's presenting your body as a living sacrifice to God. It's your job to think through how will people in the community perceive this. You say, I don't care how they perceive it. I don't care what worldly people, even God, think. I don't care what non-Christians think. You better. That's what we're called to do. Give thought. It doesn't mean they're always going to like what you do. People obviously didn't always like what Paul did, but he thought through it and thought, how will this be perceived by others? Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That doesn't mean if somebody else starts the fight, you can finish it. (laughs) It's not what that means. Do everything within your power to live peaceably with all people. And yeah, there's going to be times where they hate you anyway, and they persecute you anyway, and he already told you what you do in that case. You bless them. If they persecute you, and they hate you, and they speak evil against you, you love them, and you bless them anyway. That's what we are called to do. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's what it is to trust God with your body. Right? You say, but Wes, if we're meek like this, if we're just meek, people will walk all over us. Yes, that might happen. And that's exactly what they did with Jesus. And you think, but then we lose. If people walk all over us, then we lose. No, that's the opposite of what the cross teaches us. The cross teaches us that we win. We win by being meek and lowly and loving those who hate us. Never avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now listen to this. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? Good. You, this is how you overcome evil in the world. Do good. And we still haven't gotten that, have we? I haven't gotten that. Because when somebody pushes me, what's my natural tendency? I want to push them. When, when there's fire that needs to be fought, I want to fight fire with fire. But the gospel teaches us that's not the way you present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. The way you present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice is you intentionally, thoughtfully, 
consciously go about overcoming evil by doing good. When they curse you, you bless them. When they hate you and you persecute, when they persecute you, you feed them and you give them something to drink. Let's summarize it this way before we go. The only logical response to God's mercy is to offer your body the way a priest offers a sacrifice by loving and serving the church, your neighbor, and even your enemy. Let's pray. Most Holy Father, Lord, I want to be honest, this is hard. It's hard for me to want to bless those who persecute me, to bless those who curse me. It's hard for me to want to do good for those, to those who do evil. So Father, keep the cross at the forefront of my mind, at the forefront of all of our minds. Help us, Father, to focus on the mercies that you've bestowed on us and that we might go about in the world empowered by your spirit, motivated by the gospel, overcoming evil by doing good in your name. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.